And so I said, Grandma, you can't even run. How does an old woman who can't run, how do you survive war? And she said, you stand where others are not looking. You look like the world around you, not the world that people are looking for. Practical wisdom, that was my grandma. That was how she made it through everything. Welcome back to the Live Drop. My guest is Kalkalia Yang. She's a Hmong American writer, the author of The Late Homecomer, a Hmong family memoir, winner of the 2009 Minnesota Book Awards in creative nonfiction memoir and reader's choice, finalist for the Penn USA Award in creative nonfiction and the Asian Literary Award in nonfiction. Her second book, The Song Poet, won the 2016 Minnesota Book Award in creative nonfiction memoir. Uh, won some other awards as well. And Yang's debut children book, A Map Into the World, is an American Library Association notable book of the year and the winner of the 2020 Minnesota Book Award in Children's Literature. In the fall of 2020, Yang will have two new books, a collective memoir about refugee lives entitled Somewhere in the Unknown World and another book for children called The Most Beautiful Thing. I wanted to talk to Kalia about the legacy of the secret war in Laos, how it's remembered in the Hmong diaspora, a war fought alongside Vietnam and the shadows by the CIA and Hmong fighters against communist insurgents. I ended up having an enlightening cultural conversation with a poet in real time about birth, life, suffering, loss, death, and grief in America. Her book, Somewhere in the Unknown World, a collective memoir about the lives of refugees, comes out November 8th. You can find out more about Kalia and her work at calkaliayang.com, posted in the show notes. Begin transmission. Yeah, all my life, my father has um, has always been a wonderful song poet. He sings around the house whenever he sings outside of our house and community can gather, they gather around him. I grew up with people weeping at his songs. And I'm just thinking, this is just my dad. This is the backdrop to everything. But of course, you grow up and you realize, you know, I come from a culture where there is no word for art. Art is the way we live. Art is the way we breathe. Song poetry is poetry song without accompaniments. Your voice is your instrument into the world. The song poet has a job, though, to do culturally. The song poet carries all the memories, all the history, all of the emotions of a people. It's very much, um, when my father sings, he doesn't just belong to me anymore. He belongs to all of the community. And folk, many women who don't normally cry in the course of everyday lives, they can come and they weep and they can, they can share the loss together, the love together. So that's who my father is. Would there be anything, uh, similar you could compare that to in in american culture i mean is it bruce springsteen is he a rapper my father um i say in the beginning of the song poet that he sings the blues and he dwells on the landscape of song poetry of course he raps and he improvises like jazz if you asked him he'd say i'm very much like a country singer you know mom and dad when we first came to america worked in the factories and in the factories they'd always play the country music stations and so they come home and ask us what does this song mean what does that song mean? I still remember my dad asking me, what are swallows? There's a song that's being played every day, and it says, two swallows in a hurricane. Of course, it's the Tanya Tucker song. Um, and I yeah. have no idea, but I found out that swallows are just your common birds. And I tried to explain to him what a hurricane was. And he says, that's just like me and mom. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Did he ever use it for other reasons? Like, you know, Kalia, you forgot to clean your room. <laughs> Unfortunately not. He had older wisdoms for that, wisdoms that he picked up and carried in his heart. And so when I when I didn't do things, he'd say, of course you're tired. 
Your body lives in the world. It's tired. That's what Uncle Shang always said. It's your heart that's not tired. If you want to get the work done, you got you have to call your heart. That's my dad. That's inspiring. It's your heart. Your heart isn't tired. Your heart is your body. Tired. It's just your body. Finish your book, right? <laughs> your book. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I've become interested in oral, oral histories and the way, like an oral tradition, the way a story evolves through an oral tradition. And I'm a little bit curious from your perspective, you know, from looking at regular history and then looking at oral history is what is the process? What is lost and what remains? You know, I grew up for the first six years of my life. I didn't go to school, Mark. I didn't know reading and writing in the world of books. I only knew the stories that were told to me by my elders when I sat, I sat at their feet, you know, when I started learning about the world of books, and I have a very clear memory, you know, there was no mention of my people or what we were doing through history at all. When I was a when I was a senior in high school, my older sister, who was in college, was reading a book of Strangers from a Different Shore, Ronald Takaki, by the historian Ronald Takaki. And I remember flipping through it and seeing Mong mentioned for the very first time. And I remember running to my mom and dad in the living room and saying, we are real because we're in the books, mom. Dad, look at us, look at us. And they being who they are, they said, how are we real? And so we had a conversation about what was and wasn't real. So many of the stories about who I am and who who I would be first began in the stories that my mom and dad imagined that they dreamed up, that they carried all this long way. Same with my grandma. For me, oral histories, they allow us to re- reconcile ourselves in a world where we are not justly represented. They allow us to center ourselves in stories that the world has gone on living without. In that way, they're the sacred gift that were given to me, you know, free from documentation, free from all of the holds over who gets to publish what and who doesn't. And so I'm a child that was raised in oral histories. You know, my, my aunts and my uncles and my grandma we had no pictures. And so they used to do this. Do you see this? And I say, yes, it's your fist. They're like, no, the veins are the rivers running through. They would do this. And they, you see the hair? These are the trees in the jungle. And these are the mountains that we lived on. The whole of the world was imagined for me, made possible for me on the stretch of an arm, the freckles on a face. And that's still how I write. You know, it's really influential to the way I envision the world and the way I meet it. Oh, it is how you write. Yeah, you have a real gift for your metaphors. That, like I said, they're striking. They're striking in their in their clarity and simplicity, and uh, it makes you think like, oh, why didn't I see that? Um, there's one story that stuck out from one of your books, and you know, it's funny when you read a lot of, even like when I was being um, trained in the military, like in the 80s. You know, we had so many like dehumanizing chants that we would sing about, you know, catching the communists and so forth, you know, and, uh, you know, Charlie. And there's this whole process of dehumanization that goes on with soldiers and with training to make it easier to kill people, essentially. Um, What I found striking was this one story about the tiger where this, one of the things I found striking about it was the uh, compassion or the empathy the the actual the humanization as opposed to the dehumanization. I was wondering if you could talk about that. I think in that way, the Hmong culture is very similar to indigenous cultures here. You know, there is a respect. We believe that there's a spirit in the sky and the earth and the water, the walls that hold us safe. 
And my grandmother was a shaman, a medicine woman, and a healer. And she was the only true elder that I grew up with for a long time before I realized that my mom and dad and all my aunts and uncles were getting older. Grandma was the true one. She would teach me about all of the living things around me. She was the first person in my life who had a smile that wasn't on TV, but who I thought was beautiful. You know, Grandma had a single tooth down here. That was all she had all of my life with her. None of the American doctors could give her dentures because they would have to take out that single tooth that had grown so tall in her mouth. But Grandma refused. She'd say, it's the last thing my mom and dad gave me standing in my mouth. I'm not going to take it out. Um, but with that single right. tooth, we gnawed on ice cubes and bones, Jolly Ranchers. You know, she never said no, even to the hard things in life. And so my grandma was this huge person in my life. There was like over a hundred of us, but we only had one grandma. Okay, Mark. So she was really important and seminal. She was the one who told me how to respect and honor all the animals, animals that I couldn't possibly see in the refugee camps of Thailand where I was born, surrounded by barbed wires, surrounded by men with guns. Where were the tigers going to come from? But my grandma, through her stories, made possible a bigger world, in a world where tigers roamed, possibilities beyond the fence confines of my life. Through my grandma's stories, I not only learned how to honor these mythical animals of the bigger world, I learned how to imagine myself away from the camp. You know, it was always our humanity that these stories are trying to preserve. And in the belief of my people and the cosmology of my grandmother, honoring your humanity means honoring the lives around you and the possibilities beyond what you can see and touch and understand, which is very similar to American conversations about faith. You know, I remember reading about St. Augustine in college, Carleton College, and you know, it's that, that image, right? You wrap your arms around the tree, and your arms can't possibly touch the whole breadth of the tree, but you know that the tree must end somewhere. You know, it's that knowing that my grandma, in her infinite wisdom, uh, tried to teach all of us. And by the time I came along, grandma was incredibly experienced, you know. I was her 87th grandchild, so she was a pro at opening up my world. When I made wishes on the stars and they didn't come true, my grandma would say, Mm-mm, you did it wrong. I'd say, why? <laughs> you, you send them on the airplanes. That means that they are somewhere in the world waiting to be found. Not the stars. The stars are too high. How can they hear you? You have to send them first on the planes. That was my grandma. And that was how she taught me to honor the lives of the animals around me, the animals far away from me. That's funny. Even in her mythology, she seems to have a, an element of practicality. Very practical. Right. <laughs> right. Get real, kid. Don't wish on the stars. Wish on the airplanes. They're exactly. One of my big questions to her was always, Grandma, how did you survive a war? Young men and women were killed. You can't even run, Grandma. Maybe, maybe this is my own memory playing tricks with me, but I've always been able to outrun my grandma. And so I said, Grandma, you can't even run. How does an old woman who can't run, how do you survive a war? And she said, you stand where others are not looking. You look like the world around you, not the world that people are looking for. Practical wisdom. That was my grandma. That was how she made it through everything. She didn't go with your family initially to the camp, did she? I mean, didn't you meet with her afterward? Didn't she find her way to you guys somehow? She did. I have um, I have an uncle who's very wily and very smart. When all of my dad and his brother said they were leaving, he looked at my grandma who didn't want to come. And he said, Mom, I would die with you. Let's wait it out. 
knowing, finding out the fact that my grandma would chase the others. You know, she had nine kids. What was she going to wait with them? You know, the single one in search of them. And so he knew he was very smart. And so he waited it out for grandma. She didn't even last six months without them all. She said, fine, let's go in search of them. And so, yeah, my uncle is a very smart man. And my grandma fell for his trick. And so they met up with us in the transition camp to America. But they ended up immigrating to, to California while we were in Minnesota. Of course, as a child, you know from the book, I had no day, no way of envisioning how big America was, how far Minnesota would be from California. One of the great sadnesses of my life was discovering in the hot summer of 87 that America was such a place that without money, you couldn't reach the people you love. That was the biggest reality crash I could have had that we had no money in this country. And because we had no money, no matter how much we loved grandma and yearned to see her, that we wouldn't be able to. That was funny. You also described uh, Minnesota. You said it wasn't one of the famous places. No. (laughs) I never thought of like different cities having, you know, different levels of fame. Oh, totally. As a writer, I know that, you know, the writers from the coast, they're the famous writers. It's, you know, what we're still the land of Garrison Keeler, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Prince, we have an alternative image. But, you know, I'm definitely not the kind of writer that people hope to find in Minnesota when you hear. Not Kalia Yang with her soft voice, you know? That's not who people expect when they hear of a Minnesotan author. Yeah, you think of some old white guy talking about fishing or something. Mm-hmm. And alcohol and truck driving. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you think about Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. Yeah, she would end up around there. Judy Garland. Yeah, she, she came oh, from Oh, she's Minnesota. from Minnesota? Really? Mm-hmm. And Bob Dylan. When he had right, a, Bob Dylan. When he had a different name. But still, you don't think about Kalkalia Yangs in Minnesota, despite the fact that Minnesota has more refugees per capita than any other state in the nation. Yeah, that's what you think about it. I mean, Minnesota is a place... Yeah, you think of it as a place where people come from, but not necessarily as a destination. But yeah, you wrote you wrote in your book as well, at least in one of your stories. I, I think it might have been in the the end in the acknowledgments that, I mean, Minnesota is eighty percent white. Yeah, I mean the, the state overall. But um, I mean, I used to go to Minneapolis, and there's you know there's a there's a huge Somali population there. Um, it's it's incredibly diverse. I mean, obviously now it's also it's also in in the news as well with, um, with George Floyd and, and everything that's, that's come about from that. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have a question. I just start talking and I stop. <laughs> it, yeah. And it, I guess, uh, you know, to go back to the refugee camp, um, at what age did you go? It was Ben, Ben Vinay. Is that how you pronounce it? Ben Vinay. Ben, ben Vinay, which, which has since been destroyed and, paved over supposedly i mean that's like a that, that's a that's a memory that's a childhood place right? it is you know growing up every time somebody told me to go home or things were hard here in my heart i would escape to Banvinai, this last place where i remembered all of us being together the place where i was born when i was uh when i was in college i went back to thailand to study, if all things, global development, the rural poor, knowing that if I chose the right program, it would take me to northeastern Thailand 
you know, where, where Mami and I was, um, the highest part of the country, the poorest part of the country. And I went back there. I went on a journey into Mongness and I saw that Mami and I is now, it's a rubber plantation. The river of my youth was nothing more than an open sewage canal that's long since dried up. The, the mounds that I saw on the hills around me, burying grounds for Hmong bodies that those had long been dug up by Chinese corporations who wanted to use Hmong bodies as medicine. You know, Babinai now lives and it lives in my heart, in the hearts of those that generation of people who grew up there, who were born there, who survived it. Banbinai refugee camp was a place where my people were given food three days a week because Thailand was practicing main deterrence policy. They didn't want more Hmong people coming into their country. Banbinai is this place where suicide was the number one cause of death. We had people who remembered a life beyond, a life where we were free, dying in our captivity, suffering from PTSD and other consequences of war. It's not a happy place, but it is the place the place of my origin, the place where my story began as a as a living being. So it's important to me. Yeah, it's interesting how your grandmother taught you, I mean, metaphor, essentially, you know, that, that what you see isn't necessarily what exists or what has to exist, or what you see doesn't isn't necessarily the essential or the meaning, you know, and it, it, it's almost like that sort of ability can can help you deal with yeah, dis- disappointments or <clears throat> or tragedies in reality. Yeah, and when I look at our current, the current state of America, you know, deep in this pandemic, it's easy for me to see a life beyond. In my heart, I carry a personal map. It's always been there, Mark. I don't remember when it came to be, but it's always been there. And where I'm going is where I'm meant to go. Where we're going is where we're meant to go. This is just the moment now. It isn't the moment always. Yeah, you describe that babies come, grandmother might have told you the babies come from the sky, that they, that they already know the lives that they're going to lead and the people that they're that they're with. Yeah, the Hmong culture, we believe that before babies are born, they they live in the sky where they fly among the clouds. Calling babies down to earth is a very hard thing to do. But from the sky, babies can see in the course of rivers, the trajectories of mountains, the men and women who are going to raise them and teach them how to love and how to live and that we choose our lives. There's a great deal of agency to the Hmong cosmology. And so, yeah, I must have seen a young woman and a young man living, waiting in the dust of Bambi and I refugee camp. And there was something about me, about them that called me down. But I'll tell you, when I started, um, when I wrote The Late Homecomer, I began the book with that apograph. Because like a lot of other people, I was once a teenager. We were living on the east side of St. Paul in a 900 square feet home built in 1895, where the mold grew wild on our walls. And I remember I'd never been to a movie theater before. And that particular day, my friends were going to go because Titanic was in the theater. We didn't have cable television, but every night at 6.30 p.m., Entertainment Tonight had a special on Leonardo DiCaprio. So I was madly in love and I really wanted to go. And that day coming home from school, unable to go with my friends, all I felt was just the weight of the books on my back. I remember coming home to my dad feeling the injustice of it all. Why should a kid have to imagine the insides of a movie theater to be normal? And so I come home and my dad's tying his shoes, safety toe boots, getting ready to go to work. And I slam my book bag in front of him. He looks up and I say to him that this is not the life that I wanted for me, that I wanted something better, that I wanted something more. 
And Mark, my dad's eyes filled up with tears. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to make my father cry. Yeah. What I would say beyond those words, you know, but he blinked the tears away. He didn't let them fall. And he said to me, I would choose you all over again if I could. And a long time ago, when you were up high in the sky, you saw me and your mom and you chose to come down to us. Life is going to teach you the strength of the human heart, not of its weakness or fragility. I had nothing to say. I watched my father get up and walk away from me toward the door, start the car and go to work. Many, many, many years later, I found myself at Columbia University of all places, one of the fine Ivy Leagues that you know, kids from the housing projects don't know how to dream of. And I'm writing this book and I'm not going to become a doctor or a lawyer. Jobs that everybody knows is going to be useful and productive and honorable. I say I'm going to become an artist for my people. That's why I started The Late Homecomer the way I did to tell my father that if I could, I would choose him all over again too. I mean, I've never said this to my dad. It's in the book. But every time I read that beginning, if he's in the room, he weeps. So I think he knows that life really did teach me the strength of the human heart, not its weakness or fragility. Yeah. Agency for your destiny, like starting from the very beginning. I was reading that your, your ceremonies for for the deceased as well. It seems like the, the spirits of the deceased also have agency. I was reading about one, one situation or, or one, uh, apparently you have to, you have to guide, you, you have to, there's several souls that you, the Hmong believe in, one of which doesn't want to leave. And you have to kind of guide it around, guide, walk in circles to kind of make it dizzy so it doesn't go back into the into the house. It's a horrible way of explaining that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But um, could you could you talk about that for a little bit? I know it's it's complex and there uh, there's seven or different types of, of souls that I've read about, but could you explain that, that passage? Yeah. You know, when my grandmother died, um, she was the first natural death in her family. Until her death, everybody had died in the war or the years after suicide, disease. My grandma had died because she was old, because she lived a long time. You know, the doctors say that her heart had gone so big. And and so it was working her body over time. And so my grandma's the first natural death in our family. And that was my real first experience of saying a formal moan goodbye. We our funerals are long in, in America, many of them, if you're not if you're still following the shamanistic traditions, right up until COVID times, they were three days and three nights, twenty-four hours a day. So a funeral on average is over 72 hours a day. And if you're at the family prepping, that's more than that. It took us a month to prepare for my grandma's funeral. And at the final event, all the adults said, all of them said, you can't cry. If you cry and your tears fall on your grandma's body, she won't want to go because she loves you. She'll want to stay and be with you. And so I had to hold my tears away from her body. I had to block my eyes from her sight so she could go where because it was her time to go, because somewhere on the path to the land of the ancestors, I knew my grandpa was waiting for her, her most beautiful baby girl, her mom and her dad, her brothers and sisters. So many people were waiting for her. Now, grandma had said to me many times before she died that there were people who loved her before me, that I wasn't the first person to love her and that I wouldn't be the last. Hard things to hear when you're still young. But I accepted her words because I knew they were the truth. Because I saw my grandma in her, in her, all of her wisdom, 
because I saw my mother in all of her busy, because I saw my younger brothers and sisters crawling around the ground around me, I knew and I understood inherently that we were all just going to occupy a space for a moment in time. One day I was like my brother, the next day I would be like my mother, and then there would be a day where I'd be like my grandma sitting by the window somewhere, where so many of the people I've loved, so many of the people who loved me, they would be gone, they would be memories. So I didn't cry for my grandmother to stay, but I cried for her leaving. The special guide from the community and their really beautiful song poets and historians in their own right, he led my grandma away from us. So you have to lead the spirit all the way back to the place where they were born. Because we believe that your placenta, that's your coat, that's your jacket into the life. So you have to go get your jacket before you can go back to where you belong. And so my grandma, you know, he had to leave her from Minnesota to California, where she first came, from California across the ocean to the airport in Thailand, all the way back to the refugee camps, across the Mekong River, up and down mountains, to that little village where she was born. And the further he took her away, the harder it was for all of us to stem her tears. But there is a practical wisdom to this communal grief. You know, when you've cried for somebody for 72 hours, somewhere in the middle of it, you start laughing for them too. And when it is all done, you are emotionally exhausted, but you're not alone because the Hmong people believe that when somebody dies, the living have to come, they have to visit, they have to stand in their place so that a house doesn't grow colder, so a heart doesn't grow colder. And so after my grandma died from my uncle's house, hundreds of us gathered at their house to sleep on their floors and warm it up for weeks until the family could acclimate to a life without grandma there so that all of us could acclimate to a world without her. But yeah, there are all these elements to, to, the, to the Hmong rituals and traditions that make so much practical sense to me. They keep the loneliness away. It's a, as far as rituals go, you, you can see the, the practicality of it. For the grieving process, it mirrors some of the loneliness that all of us go through when somebody we love dearly is, is no longer here. And then you even continue to feed them, you know. Um, we call grandma to the table to eat with us uh, for, for several weeks after she died. Until finally one day my uncle put the food out, you know, at the lamppost outside the door of uncle's house. And then finally he took it to the park further away from us. Because there's an understanding that her journey had begun and that she was traveling, venturing further and further away. And one day she becomes an ancestor, you know. So we call her during the New Year's feast. Whenever uh, somebody's spirit needs some help coming home, we call on Grandma, and she she protects us with her love. Wow! So if you find food in the park, don't eat it. Don't eat it, <laughs> right? It could be for for something else. Yeah. Yeah. My dog. My dog passed away three weeks ago. I had a really hard time with that. that. Yeah. How old is your dog? Oh, he was thirteen. How long have you known him? Thirteen years. All thirteen. Yeah. All well, 13. he was six months when I got him, so twelve and a half. Yeah. What was his name? Rudy. 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 Yeah, like Rudy Valley, the old crooner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a lovely name. Yeah, he was part. He was part shepherd, pit bull, and chow. Very loyal. You know, good watchdog. But yeah, that's an idea. That's you know, these spirits they have to move on as well. And it's funny, like the idea of, you know, the living, having a part of that, having a role in that as well and helping them move on. Because the love doesn't just leave, you know, like in my own life, I've had several big stories of dogs, you know, refugees can't leave, can't take their pets with them. 
And so in Bambinai refugee camp, we had to leave our beloved dogs, dogs that other families had to leave behind and they were hungry and they came wandering and my dad fed them. So they, they became loyal to us and they became ours. But of course, in the final leaving, we too couldn't take them. You know, so my own life has been, I think, really much marked by those pets that couldn't, couldn't come along to this new world. Yeah. Um, I was just working in Thailand. Oh, you were? Earlier this year, February and March. Yeah. So I was in Bangkok and I was in um, Kanchanaburi, I guess. Yeah. Kanchanaburi, a little farther up on the Mekong. And didn't make it all the way up to Ben Vinay, although that would be an interesting, interesting trip. But there were uh, wild dogs that would hang around on the set, you know, and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd feed them and we'd, but then you had to, you had to leave as well. But I, I thought to myself, wow, I'm not the first person to love this dog. You know, I mean, there are people, there are other people that are coming through, they're filming in different areas or working in different areas. And yeah, these dogs, they teach us, they teach us how to live and how to lose, don't they? They do. You know, on my honeymoon, I went to, um, this place called Campeche in Mexico, this world heritage city, many people pass through, but not many people stay. But my husband and I both sucked at driving. So we had to stay within the town. So we were there for like 10 days. And there were these hungry dogs that would wander the streets and we're like, oh, they're nobody's dogs. But then one day a storm broke through and we saw this man in rags carrying these dogs one by one into this abandoned building. And we realized, no, these are not just dogs wandering through. These are dogs that are cared for in this community. There are people who care for them. Again, the things that you don't see. Now, once in a while, you have an opportunity, a sliver of a moment to see beyond your understanding of the world or your perspective of, of certain things. These things change you forever, you know? I never expected those hungry dogs that waited by that gate every single day to be so lovingly held and picked up and carried into this abandoned courtyard. But there was happening right before my eyes. Yeah, somebody loves them. Somebody loves them. Yeah. I had a funny experience. I, I would um, take my dog as he was getting older. I would take him to a park in Pasadena. It was just all grass and trees and shade. And it was just like an ideal place. So he would kind of limp around there for a little bit and walk. And I'd sit there with him and, uh, you know, kind of sit there. And there's homeless in this park, kind of just sitting around lounging as well. And somebody came into the park holding, I don't know, a bunch showed up with a bunch of like white, white paper bags. And it seemed to be in a hurry. And he kind of stopped at me and he's like, do you want something to eat? And I said, no, I'm, I'm okay. And then he went to like a homeless person and was like, do you want something to eat? And I thought, oh, oh my, you know, I mean, I, you know, I have a place to go to, but, um, God, that was so touching that, uh, you know, that person just saw me with my dog and thought he could, he could be homeless, you know, I'll offer, offer him something as well. But somebody that actually cared for all those homeless people, it did give them, it, it made me look at everyone a little bit differently. I mean, not just the person who was doing the the good deed, not just the person who was doing it. I thought, well, that's selfless. But everybody else, you know, I mean, every creature that you cared for, that you care for increases in value in some way. You know, I had a- well, this, this interview is taking a turn. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think we'd go here. But yeah, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. So I had a miscarriage in 19 weeks, my first pregnancy, a baby boy who we named Baby Jules. We found out that he had died inside of me at the first ultrasound. Right up to that, we, we were hearing his heartbeat and movements and, and whatnot. It was incredibly devastating. You know, my mother had six miscarriages after me in Bambina refugee camp. 
we didn't have enough food. And when faced, I think, with the decision to keep the babies inside of her alive or the ones in front of her, my mother made a clear decision. Every time we saw her with something to her mouth, she would offer it to my sister and me. So we lived and all the baby boys died after we were born. But I was growing up in America. I had become a woman in America. I had plenty to eat and I hadn't quite expected to be situated so closely to her, her pain. But um, at 19 weeks, I found out the baby Jules had died inside of me. So we had to make a decision to deliver the baby into the world. I remember taking a walk after the loss of baby Jules with my husband. It was autumn and everything was beginning to die. I stopped watering my flower plants. I have potted flowers everywhere. I stopped watering them because I thought, what was the point? Winter was coming. What would a few more days of bloom matter in the end? I closed my eyes and I thought I could I could just slow my breathing down and die right here, right now. There was this emptiness, this sorrow inside. You know, there were moments when I wish I'd never met my husband, never fallen in love, never gotten pregnant. And then I opened my eyes and I saw this drying clematis vine on this fence. And I saw that among all these dry stalks, there was one purple flower blooming, just blooming there. And I thought, who is it blooming for? Why bother? And then I felt it was almost as if somebody had spilled cold water on me. I woke up uh-huh. the moment. The clematis blooms and it bloomed in that moment for me. That my life should continue. That the dream child that we had made could live on and that those dreams can become something else. You know? And I started walking and breathing again. And of course, as life would have it, miscarriages are mostly spontaneous, right? The spontaneous expulsion of a fetus. Um, But I had a daughter the year after. And then two years after that, I was pregnant again. And they were identical twin boys. Identical twins are spontaneous, right? That's the medical understanding that one egg would divide into two. But that's the world we live in. And that's the magic of it all. It's the road to life is so long. We say in the Hmong culture that you accept, you welcome life at the gate of death. When I deliver my boys, I coded Mark. I, after they were delivered, I looked at the clock and I saw that the hands of time had stopped turning for me. So I asked Jen, my, my very kind nurse, I said, Jen, am I going to die? And she says to me, no, sweetheart, the hard part is done. I looked up and the clock still wasn't moving. And so I said, Jen, if I'm going to die, I would like to have two warm cups of water, please. I feel very cold. And so she brought me two warm cups of water. I guzzled them down. And then they cleaned me up and they took me out. And my mom comes running. She puts her hand on my heart and my heart stops beating. You know, I coded. My husband said that he didn't know what was going on until he saw the hospital, um, the, the, the priest enter the room. And, she, and, and then he realized, oh, my God, this is it. This is good. This is goodbye. But I woke up in the ICU later and I woke up and I saw my mom sitting at the end of my hospital bed and she was talking and I could hear her from far away talking. But she was bartering for my life with her own mark. She was telling the universe, the world, the world of the ancestors to take her and to leave me, to let me live, that she was ready and willing to die so I could live. But the moment I woke up, the thing I was looking for was the sound of my crying babies. I wanted to know that they were alive and that, that we had we had gotten them. My grandma believed that there was no 
escape from heartache. You couldn't take Tylenols for, Tylenol for a broken heart. That was always her thing. There are no shortcuts to feelings. For every beautiful thing, every gift that we've given, there will be some giving in return. And I think that's, that's rather Buddhist, right? That we don't get everything. That we only get some things, and that's just the way it goes. But 13 years of loving Rudy, 13 years of missing him, at least, you know, there is no other way around the map. And that's just the way it goes. And in the end, if you truly love something, if you truly love someone, then you will tell yourself that it's worth it. It's been a blessing, made you a better person. That's, yeah, yeah, that's grieving, that's love. There is no other way to live. Thank you for that. That's why I write. That's why I do these interviews and these podcasts. We get to think about what really matters to all of us. Yeah, I just heard a dog bark. I know, me too. You hear him out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Funny world. I, to, to, <laughs> yeah, this is, I didn't expect this. Well, I probably should have expected it. I mean, the daughter of a, a granddaughter of a shaman and the daughter of a song poet, right? I'd like to jump into um, some kind of the legacy of some of the of what you remember, or what is, or or what what remains, or what uh, how people talk about the war in in Laos. Um, I, you know, I've read some other books about some people, like I mean, there was Jerry Daniels, who was an American CIA officer, Hog Daniels, who ended up going to Bun Vinai and working with the refugees. I mean, he said that. He was surprised that a lot of the Hmong refugees didn't want to go to the United States. They they were waiting to be taken. They were waiting to be helped to get their um, homeland back. Uh, there were guys like Pop Buell. I, I even spoke with this man named Father Lucian Bouchard, who had been a uh, a priest over in the um, Sam Nua, I think, region. Who was who was, who was an American? Was a Catholic missionary there for. I mean, since like the late the late fifties, he's still alive. He lives in Massachusetts. I spoke with him for a little while, and uh, you know, there's guys named Bill Lair, and of course, Vang Pao. Um, are are some of these names or these people kind of remembered in your kind of collective history about that war? Vang Pao is huge, right? He's like the highest ranked military leader the Mo have ever known, in the, at least in recent memory. Um, his role and what would happen to all of our lives was huge. Um, and then the other names, of course, I know them. I wrote nonfiction books. I did a lot of research. You know, my good friend, Paul Hilmer, who's a historian, um, he loves them all. And so every time we get to talk, he wants to talk about all these, all these guys, all these white guys, some of them dead, some of them alive. Um, they feature prominently. And I think this goes, I think this is the heart of your question. I think that you're asking how were these cons, the consequences of these wars and how do, how do we remember them? I was in a recent conversation with a lady for the, um, she was a historian and she watched, she, they had this book and she explained to me how, why they didn't have a lot of Hmong stories in them. Because so many times you go to people who have objects from, you know, objects from, from parts and points in their lives. Refugees don't have a lot of things, period. You know, we don't have a lot of documents about what happened. Historians love documents. They love what is written, what is recorded. And the Hmong, because of our oral history t- tradition and because of who we are as a people, and then as a people fleeing for our lives, we had so very little. 
And I talked to her and then I went and I was having a conversation with my uncle. My uncle who had been a teacher before the war. And he says to me, oh, she's looking for documentations. She should look at my body. And and I looked at him. He goes, all the scars I carry here, Minai. He shows me his arms and his legs. Shattered bone pieced together again. And you could feel it beneath the, beneath the hairless skin. Skin that's so traumatized the hair won't grow. He goes, that war we carry in our bodies and in our hearts. The document is here, clear as anything. But it's not a document that many Americans are comfortable reading. You know, you talk about some of the Hmong who didn't want to come to America. It's so hard to trust a nation that left your people to die. The understanding was that if something happened in that war, for the soldier who fought under General Vang Pao in the CIA, that the CIA would take them out. The CIA only took Vang Pao and his 2000 highest ranked military. You know, the estimates are that a third of our people died in the war. Another third died in the declaration of genocide and its aftermath. The CIA knew that there was a declaration of genocide when they led, when they left Laos behind. Gaozampa, that Lao, the leading communist paper said, it is necessary to extirpate down to the root the Hmong minority. There was no question that they were going to come and that they were going to come and kill Hmong people off for having helped the Americans in that war. By the end of everything, there was so little to trust. You know, so often when people talk to refugees and a lot of immigrants who come to this country, it is the land of opportunity. It is the land of dreams. The reality is that so many of those dreams were shattered by American forces overseas, by American foreign policies, by the politics of, of greed, capitalism. You know, for every Gokaliya in the world you meet, two others died so I could be here, Mark. I went to the graduate school on a huge fellowship, and one of the questions that was asked of me in this room full of kids from Stanford and Harvard who wanted to be doctors and lawyers was, where would you be if not for this war? Is it true that sometimes wars bring on good things and that you are one of those examples? And I had to say out loud, I had to say, I don't want your money if I'm going to sit here as an example that wars bring on good things. Who's to say that that the two who died said I could be here, that one of them would be a better writer, or that collectively all three of us could have envisioned a better way into the future. If that is what I am at this table, then I don't want your money. Those are the facts. So many people who find their way to America find our way here because there was nowhere else we could have turned. America's influence in the history of the world as we know it is vast, it's immense. But it's a very hard conversation you know, any American that makes it to Laos, that sits in those cafes lined lined with with bombs, missiles, you know, U.S. property written all over them. You've got to reckon. When the craters are deeper than the houses and the buildings, you have to reckon. And that is what Laos is. I visited two years ago. It's a country ravaged by that war still. My father looks to the mountains he loves and he remembers when the bombs took the bites out of the mountains. You know, the mountains didn't recover, Mark. And today, the reality is that unexploded American ordinances continue to kill at least one Laotian civilian a day. A war that the world has declared over in 1975, that for my family didn't end until 1979. A war that we understand because every few years, the New York Times covers, carries a story about Hmong people, some 800 families fleeing from a war that the world has long declared over. There are widows my age looking at the world with one eye. 
who are running from a war that they don't understand why they're running from. You know, these things that we learn in our history books, they're nothing but crutches, crutches on the road to true learning. These conversations that we have, we're scratching the surface about war and the ramifications of war and the beginnings and the endings of war. The author of Yetan Wan, the Pulitzer Prize winning author, says that wars are fought twice, once in reality and then again in, in memory, and that they don't end. They don't end because of Hollywood, for example. You know, Spike Lee just had another movie out about the Vietnam War. One more movie where there's no mention of my people or our role in that war. You know, when somebody asks me, what are you? And I say, I'm all more often than not outside of Minnesota, Wisconsin and California. People say, are you from Mongolia? What are you doing here? And I have to explain once again what I'm doing here from a war that nobody knows about. The secret war in Laos, the outcome of America's Vietnam War. Sad chapter in American history that very few people want to revisit. I said yes when you invited me because I knew you'd done your research and I knew you would do your research and that you were interested in scratching the surface of what so many people take as knowledge. You know, for every war that we know about, there's 10 others that we don't, at least. And our country is beginning to fill up with these people looking for a way forward and the places where, where whatever directions they had intended for their lives no longer exist. Yeah, it would almost seem like there needs to be a kind of like a communal ritual, you know, where everyone can get together and in a, in a way mourn, mourn that event together. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we live in a, in a country that is full of grief right now, that is grieving, grieving so much. And we're, we, we live in a grief-averse society, so so many people want to forget the grief. In fact, some people are choosing to rather go into the hospitals than, than, than to actually wallow in the grief that is consuming so many of us. They're choosing to what? To go into the... In hospitals, you know, like people who are making decisions to be brave, to believe that there is no pandemic, to believe that, that they will survive, because it's so hard to wallow in the grief. We're grieving our whole history, the foundations of our nation. We're grieving our dreams. We're grieving who can, we can be as a people. There's so much grief in America because so few people want to examine it, to, to actually sit with it. Sitting with grief is very non-American. It's very un-American, you know? Oh, of course. But of course, we're finding out that you cannot, you cannot build a nation without grieving first what is lost. I just, I feel like you just ended the interview with something incredibly uh yeah something incredibly important it's 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 interesting we don't uh i don't want to take up a lot more of your time but gosh this has been a wonderful conversation i just wanted to thank you so much for uh being on the live drop thank you for having me and thank you for sharing rudy's memories with me thank you now i carry a piece of your dog with me it's a power stories i do you know next time i meet a dog named rudy i'll think first of yours 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Helped you yeah, get some thank free you. food that you turned down in a park. Rudy got you some free food in Pasadena. You turned it down, but it was because of Rudy <laughs> that you were it's offered. It's because Rudy got me some free food. <laughs> and lots of love. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really suspect the interview was going to be about grieving, but essentially that is that is what we're surrounded with right now and the one and the thing we're all trying to avoid. Thank you for having me. Thank you.